Hello, welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is educating about and working towards a true people's liberation movement, and one day soon, a true proletarian revolution. But until that lovely day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say welcome back to the show. Today we're trying something new. I uh, got recently a new laptop, and believe it or not, I have about an hour free before I have anything else to do tonight. So I figured I'd hop on, I'd record a real episode in the comfort of my home using the microphone that I spent $60 on and actually record a semi-decent argumentative discussion about the importance of a party and why this moment in uh, world history should be uh, being understood as a uh, call to action uh, when it comes to actually organizing ourselves and getting ready to uh, take the next steps towards working class emancipation. So this one we're going to call it uh, a bonus just simply because um, I am rolling a blunt right now. Um, a legally smokable blunt, depending on what state you're in. But weed's legal to smoke in my state um, only recently. So I'm smoking a little bit of weed. I'm at home. I'm safe. I am not behind the wheel. I am within my legal bounds to say I am doing this. So, smoking a blunt um, and uh, just kind of, you know, shooting the shit. We're going to get a little bit more serious, but ultimately, you know, I, my head isn't 100% in it. That's why we're calling it a bonus. Um, so, first and foremost, uh, I want to discuss uh, up front a few things that are happening across the world maybe contextualize the uh, moment that we are in currently and discuss a few things that are being uh, said to need to be accomplished. So we are, it's October 3rd, 2021 as I'm recording this. And we are just coming out of, although most of it is still continuing, uh, what was called Striketober. Um, for those of you who, you know, maybe don't watch anything other than mainstream news, who, uh, for whatever reason, might not have been following the show, or just, you know, you don't really know too much about it, there was and is something like, I don't know, altogether something like three, four million workers on strike right now in the United States. Um, there's workers at uh, John Deere, there are the Warrior Met Coal workers, there are uh, in my area at the, well I shouldn't say really my area, in my state, um, in Buffalo at Mercy Hospital, uh, nurses are on strike for poor working conditions, a lack of 
uh, time off and adequate pay and a need to hire more people. Now this isn't the only thing that's taking place. Of course, if you have also been paying attention to this, you've probably uh, been aware of also the incredible indigenous-led movements which have been taking place. Um, uh, recently, of course, we uh, know a lot of us about the Line 3 struggle, um, which took place for, I think, over the course of multiple years in total. Um, and to some extent, is still taking place right now, although the pipeline, I believe, was made operational. Um, one example of something to do about that, which I cannot legally advocate for, is exactly what was done to the Live fi Line 5 uh, pipeline, um, which I can't claim, uh, you know, any kind of responsibility for that idea. Not only was it already done, which if you don't know, someone went dressed up as a pipeline worker and literally just shut the pipeline off. Um, if uh, if you weren't aware of that, that's uh, something that was brought to my attention by uh, Bands of Turtle Islands host um, when we recorded our episode together, which uh, still is yet to come out, just uh, kind of waiting on stuff across the board to get finished up, and then that will be out, so be on the lookout for that. But there was a uh, occupation of the BIA building in Washington, D.C., uh, right down the street from a Chamber of Commerce protest, which refused to and ultimately did not take any part in assisting the indigenous and the uh, elders who were being arrested almost within hours of showing up to the BIA building. Um, this is kind of the uh, political and social landscape we find ourselves in. Of course, last year there was an incredibly uh, powerful movement uh, being led, an anti-racist, anti-police uh, movement for uh, black, brown, uh, and indigenous lives. Um, although oftentimes it was viewed as a, uh, what I've referred to as a Black Lives Matter movement, uh, there are many protests and many different demonstrations which took place around the country which used this as a platform to advocate for and demonstrate about other things as well. Um, and that's why I mentioned it was, you know, ultimately a uh, coordinated movement um, for more than just you know, for example, police defunding. Um, ignore that in the background, that's my heater. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, this is kind of where we find ourselves, right? Um, at least here in the United States. Uh, you have, there was uh, all kinds of outrage and um, action against the Texas government, and I'm sure there will be similar reactions to the uh, Virginia government coming soon now that the GOP has uh, won their uh, way um, <clears throat> and uh, so the reason why we want to kind of contextualize these things and and maybe in, in other episodes we'll take a little bit deeper dives into these individual things which are taking place but the reason why we want to mention these is because it's important to recognize, first and foremost, where the general attention and ultimately the energy 
of the broad working people within the U.S. Uh, is centered, where it finds its strength, uh, what it is mainly organizing for, is it organizing, and uh, what are the ways in which it is uh, trying to implement the changes which it is advocating for. This is all very important to understand. I have done a few episodes on the importance of understanding the difference between a socialist and a purely economist struggle, uh, how they form themselves, how they organize themselves, and ultimately what uh, they are organizing towards oftentimes, uh, which I feel is important to recognize why sometimes uh, unions in and of themselves are not necessarily capable of achieving everything and anything that the working class uh, acquires. Um, for more on that, you can check out those episodes. I don't feel like going into that now. Um, but you also want to get a feel for this because if you don't, I mean, you don't know what the fuck to put on your signs, right? You don't know what to be building your organizations around. You don't really have, uh, at least a true, you know, a true analysis based on, you know, experience and direct connection to the workers you don't have a real idea of what it is that they're calling for, what it is that they want, where their kind of minds are at, what their consciousness level is. Now, some people don't find this important. Some folks say, well, as long as folks are out on the street, I don't care if they're Republican, I don't care if they're Democrat, I don't care if they're black, I don't care if they're white, I don't care if they're capitalist, I don't care if they're socialist, I don't care if they're anarchist, and I don't care if they're communist. As long as they're on the streets, as long as they're doing something, well then that's, you know, that's that. That's what we need. And there's really two sides to that coin. So first and foremost, yeah, you want people in the streets. You want people demanding change. Whatever that change may be, you don't want people stagnant and you don't want people assuming that nothing can change or that they can't change anything because that is really where the spirit of change comes from is the masses. Um, so of course, firstly, you have to figure out what it is that the masses are calling for. This is important because you want to be able to engage with the workers where they're at. And I want to specify what I mean by that. So if there aren't already existing revolutionary organizations, then you can't expect that you're going to find the masses in revolutionary organizations. If you find the masses at demonstrations, or you find the masses in unions, or you find the masses in tenant unions, you have to figure out where they're at, uh, not only their consciousness level, but also their organizational level. For example, right now, the average American citizen has absolutely no political experience. Um, the political experience that they claim to have is participation in electoral politics. But the reason why I would not call this political experience is because these voting mechanisms, this uh, 
pre-designated electoral system is not predicated on the interests of or even due to the active work by the masses of today. These avenues are set up oftentimes before any of us were born and they have been working as ineffectively as ever since really the day they were designed. The reason why also I wouldn't call this political experience is because it's not actually engaging in any kind of struggle. You are not trying to implement your will over the already existing political structures by voting. As uh, Professor August Nimps, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, who was recently on uh, the Gorilla Podcast, um, Gorilla History Podcast, excuse me, he discusses the fact that ultimately what voting is, is it's a uh, designation or a uh, application of one's own preference. Um, however, this is not done through active struggle. Oftentimes the ways in which you and I uh, participate in this way is pretty... Um, uh, how do I want to say this? It's not necessarily... Uh, active and militant participation in a movement or uh, in a political party or apparatus that brings people to voting. Usually it's a apathy or a neutrality which brings people to the ballots. Um, because, you know, a lot of folks... <clears throat> They kind of play pixies, right? Every single four years, it's not really about uh, being a hardline Democrat or a hardline Republican. A lot of folks, uh, your average working class folks, you talk to them, and all they're looking for oftentimes is either a policy, which they are interested in, whether that be you know improvement of social services, uh, police reforms, etc., etc., or they are voting based off of their interest in a specific political candidate. Um, oftentimes, folks don't even vote Democrat because, uh, you know, a blue no matter who mentality, although this does still take its, you know, it, it does still have its supporters. Oftentimes, people are voting on either um, individual basis or, uh, you know, a policy that's really bringing them to the ballot box. Um, this is because the people have seen time and time again that whether it's the Republican or the Democratic Party, they oftentimes work hand in hand, and they, they work in tandem, really. Um, what one does in four years, the other one uses as an excuse and an ultimate you know reasoning as to why they do what they want to do in the next four years. But, as I always like to say to my grandma, who her main thing is, Oh, the Democrats and the Republicans, they just don't they just don't like to reach across the aisle to one another. Well, in fact they do, because ultimately they're the only ones sitting at the aisle. You and I aren't there. They get to decide between each other. And we don't know whether it's, you know, through coercion or whether it's through uh, conspiracy, that ultimately they end up doing the same things most of the time. Um 
you know, most of the Democrats voted in favor of a bill that would punish any locality who defunded their police by taking away their national funding. That was a vote of 99 to 0. The only one person who didn't vote, uh, you know, was the, the reason why it wasn't a 100 to 0 vote. Um, on top of that, the Democrats have sent us to war. The Republicans have sent us to war. The Democrats are waging sanctions. The Republicans are waging san sanctions. The Democrats are continuing the imperialist possession and destruction of the global south. And the Republicans are continuing the imperial and global destruction of the uh, global south. And therefore, when push comes to shove, the ruling class, that is, the Democrats and the Republicans, the people in power, right, they have a conspiracy to at least work together for their continual and mutual ownership of the uh, government positions of power and uh, of decision-making, meaning, you know, so the Democrats and the Republicans themselves may not necessarily and directly have ownership of the means of production, but their decisions and their ability to make those decisions and those decisions be binding is ultimately what leads towards the continued ownership of the means of production by the ruling class capitalist elites, whether they are politicians or uh, industrialists or uh, social media moguls or what, the incredible amounts of wealth which are held in the hands of the ruling class all ultimately serve one goal and that is the continued ruling of the ruling class so the reason why i bring all of this up is because ultimately we know that the average working people do not have too much confidence in the political uh uh apparatuses that <coughs> apparati that exist today um so let's talk about that a little bit Historically speaking, we know here in the United States that most uh, politicians, most government officials, have gone into the office on rhetoric or on campaign promises which were never accomplished. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why. Um, one of the main ones being because they don't actually want to change anything. The second one being a little bit more complicated, which is when you go into these, uh, you know, avenues and uh, try to implement change through the pre-existing pre-existing mediums um, it's almost impossible the only ways in which quote unquote checks and balances actually you know do anything in the United States is by making sure that at the end of the day it is only the ruling class parties which get to decide whether or not something does or does not happen. Um, the checks and balances between the Senate um, or Congress or whatever doesn't really matter because, you know, I mean, time and time again, the president goes against Congress, Congress goes against Senate, the Senate goes against Congress, the Supreme Court overrules them all. So you can say, oh, there's checks and balances right there. They're keeping each other in check. But at the end of the day, most of us don't want any of those assholes in power. Most of us can see why, whether there's an R or a D next to your name, there will never be anything that these people do 
that actually will lead towards true uh, material change. And that's really what I want to talk about, because ultimately when we are trying to uh, make change, we have to realize that it's not so much uh, words, uh, campaign promises, policies, legislation, etc., that win people over, that uh, guide the you know political struggle, but it's the actual actions which these groups and individuals take or do not take which leads towards change or none. For example, the Democratic Party holds absolutely all the power it requires to implement most of the changes which the Biden administration came in on promises of, such as eliminating student debt, which the uh, Biden administration has lied about and said that they have no power to do, when in fact the bill to do just that has been sitting on their desk for months now. Um, and it has been revealed that, in fact, Joe Biden and his administration do have the power to uh, revoke all student debt, but they choose not to. This is ultimately just as much a part of the political struggle, um, this uselessness of the political apparatuses that exist today, as is anything else. However, it feels like, and it ultimately does not lead towards uh, political struggle, it ultimately feels like stagnation because, and this is one of the most important things that I want to bring up in this episode, and it will bring us to my next uh, overall argument, there is nothing that is pushing or opposing these pre-existing groups of power. The Democratic Party can time and time again absolutely fold over for the Republicans and quote-unquote compromise because there's no oppositional party. The Democrats and the Republicans play a duopoly role, meaning they are each other's opposition. Even though, at the end of the day, as we just said, they do play the same role, they ultimately end up passing the same legislation, participating in the same imperialist and capitalist exploitation of the world. But we know, and we see this every single four years, that when a Republican's in office, it's the Democrats' fault that nothing's getting passed. And when a Democrat's in office, it's the Republicans' fault that nothing's getting passed. They are oppositional enough in aesthetic in order to play the role of duopoly, right? Which is, of course, a monopoly of two. Uh, Julius Nereri, the first president of uh, Free Tanzania, said the United States is a one-state government but in true American extravagance, it has two. Or I should say a one-party government, excuse me. Um, it has one party that looks like two. True American extravagance, right? And excuse these long breaks in between. I'm smoking and drinking. We're just kind of chilling right now, you know? Um... The reason why this is important to understand is because without true opposition, one, of course, we know, change isn't happening. Two, 
different ideas aren't given a platform to actually be expanded upon, nobody can really learn what socialism actually is with folks like Bernie Sanders and AOC being the main proponents advocating for socialism, advocating, of course, for social democracy, but using the word socialism as a guise to convince the working class who actually have some uh, belief in a socialist system that uh, they offer in opposition to the Democratic and Republican Party. But as we know, uh, considering the fact that Bernie was absolutely uh, rat-fucked uh, out of two... Um, uh, nominations by the Democratic Party. If he was actually a revolutionary and actually intended on guiding the working class towards a socialist future, he would have fucking left and started an oppositional party. Um, that just makes sense because the Democratic Party has done absolutely nothing for him in the 30 plus years of his, you know, being in government other than allow him to own multiple houses, have a uh, public government position for 30 plus years and be able to continue platforming himself as a socialist even though he does nothing to actually build socialism um and this is you know one of the reasons why we have to question what the uh efficacy of a the democratic party and b social democracy truly is because the Biden administration just slashed a $3.7 trillion infrastructure bill down to $1.6, but increased our military spending budget from more than $750 billion. Now, I'm not trying to pretend as if I have the magic key to what needs to be done, right? I only want to point out the A, the kind of illegitimacy of the claims that the Democratic Party and the socialists, quote unquote, within it, claim to make, uh, the to, to point out the lack of change that is being uh, developed, and also to try to uh, bring up in our own minds ideas and kind of methods that we think would work better than the ones that are being tried currently. I don't think that's so ridiculous, right? <laughs> I don't think you even necessarily need to be a devout socialist to do that, um, or a communist or an anarchist or whatever. I think that many working class people do that on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the most common things you hear, <coughs> they're both in it for themselves, right? You hear that from everyone. Oh, fuck these politicians, right? But we go and line up in the... I mean, how many of us just went and voted yesterday? Not to shame anyone for voting, because uh, Lenin and plenty of others, including Marx himself, said that any way in which we can actively participate in the political system, we must, and we must use it as a platform for advocating for socialist ideas and actually trying to push socialist ideas. Um... But, you know, how many of us said for the last two years or however long, last four years, that, you know, fuck the electoral system, and yet we, we go and line up every, you know, few years. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't or that we should. I'm saying right then and there is a contradiction that we don't consciously, like, point out because then we have to face that, the, the little, you know, hypocrisy and contradiction. We have to come to a conclusive decision on what to do. Um...
but anyways this is a problem this is a problem for a lot of different reasons one the incredibly trying times that we have been in for the last two plus years you know the world's been in for decades but we'll, we'll, we'll center around the pandemic especially <coughs> this moment in time should have and could have been captured as a revolutionary moment i mean let's just talk about how the united states government responded to the covid pandemic in december and november you have some of the first cases popping up in wuhan right now of course we have an international community, right? So this was news everywhere. Um, it was not kept out of the news. Uh, it was not censored by the Chinese government. Um, in fact, the local uh, governments within uh, Wuhan and uh, organizations made quite clear that this was a uh, potential danger and that precautions needed to be taken. <laughs> It's in January that uh, some of the first mentionings of cases in the United States happen in the Congress and House of Representatives. Uh, now, it isn't until March, mid-March. My birthday is March 2nd. I had a birthday party for my birthday in 2020. It wasn't until, I think, the 18th that lockdown officially started in New York State. So that's two months that the U.S. government was conscious of this possibly incredibly dangerous uh, uh, pandemic-causing virus and did diddly fucking squat. In any case where it was brought up, Trump and his administration consistently hammered away that it was the China virus, that it was, uh, in some cases, according to him and his constituents, uh, a ploy by the Chinese government. In some cases, it was the bat flu of the crazy Chinese people who eat bats. In some cases, it escaped. Um, in some cases, it was brought directly by Chinese diplomats. There were all kinds of stories about the origin of the pandemic. But what was not accomplished was a full-fledged lockdown and uh, uh, capturing of this and containing of this virus. That was not accomplished, not before nor after March 18th. We know this because we are still in the midst of the pandemic. No matter what you're, you know, no matter what you think, the world is still in the middle of one of the worst global pandemics uh, of this history, right? Right then and there, not only did we do a incredibly poor job responding health-wise, people lost their jobs with no guarantee that they were getting them back. You had an absolute abysmal response by the unemployment funds for, you know, stimulus checks, um, you had local governments uh, uh, which were doing nothing for protection um, in comparison to the responses that were happening all across the world, especially in Wuhan itself. Um, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely, I, I guess the only word to use is abysmal because you just plainly had no response. You had... Uh, let, let us not forget, right? And, you know, I, I wish I had names and everything, which I'm sure if I took a second I could find some, but I'm not going to do that. 
Um, you had all these politicians who just sold off all their fucking stocks. Um, I, I definitely think that it's ridiculous of us to forget that, um, this happened, that, you know, the, the only real response that the representatives of the U.S. people, uh, had to the initial, uh, invasion of the COVID-19, uh, virus was to sell stocks, was to get all their money in order, was to concentrate their wealth and try to basically, I mean, manipulate the economy to make sure that they ended up rich at the end. And let me mention here that since the beginning of the pandemic, the United States top 10 richest people, so the top 10 wealthiest people in the United States, added over $3 trillion to their wealth since the beginning of the pandemic. Now that's incredible because I don't know about you, but I didn't even get a fucking stimulus check. Um, I didn't fucking get any unemployment assistance. I worked all throughout the pandemic. And I'm not shaming anyone who did. I'm simply mentioning, hey, that $3 trillion looks a lot better than the zero dollars that I and everyone in Borinquen got, Puerto, Puerto Rico got, um, and, and all the, you know, folks who were unemployed or all the folks without, you know, the proper documentation. That $3 trillion seems like it could be divvied up quite evenly and helped quite a lot of people, even those who did get unemployment assistance and, you know, these stimulus checks. Everybody who had to uh suffer during this pandemic has all been consistently uh of a working class character so i think that much so you know this i i just wanted to use this as a, a, a easy example to say that the u.s government the representatives which the u.s people had decided that they wanted in office had failed the people absolutely failed done nothing nothing but make sure that they remained rich and they remained in power. I mean, these motherfuckers were going to parties. They weren't social distancing. They weren't wearing masks. These motherfuckers were doing whatever they wanted. While they were telling everybody, stay inside. Don't fucking go nowhere. Um, no, we're not going to help you out with bills. No, we're not going to get you groceries. No, we're not going to tell your job that they need to shut down too. Um, you just need to stay home, right? Uh, they absolutely failed the... Uh, North American people, and I think that this should have been an opportunity in which the U.S. people had taken it upon themselves to do something about that. But uh, a few th different things stand in the way, and I, I hope to use this as a transition into uh, the important conversation about getting organized here in the United States. Um, it was clear, right, that the Democratic Party offered absolutely no opposition to the Republican Party. In November, most of us didn't even know what the fuck the point of going to the polls was, to paying attention to the election. Most folks were just, you know, it, it was Trump versus Biden. Come on now, we all remember how that was. We all remember uh, how we felt because we feel that way almost every fucking election cycle. But... You know, some folks, uh, 
there was all kinds of responses to this, and but the the majority of us felt that, um, at least in the conversations that I had, the majority of us felt that neither one offered what the working and oppressed people in this country required. Um, the uh, response to uh, during the COVID pandemic, the continuation of police killings, um, such as the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, these led to incredible movements for social and political justice, right? Nothing. Nothing. Um, and one of the main things that this energy was kind of siphoned off into was twofold, right? The election, of course. But also, and there's a, a clever case made, again, by that same professor, uh, August Nymphs, which uh, he just, again, was on an episode of Guerrilla History Podcast with uh, uh, Henry Huckamaki, uh, Adnan Hussein, and uh, Brett from Rev Left Radio, uh, where he said that the defund the police campaign also did a toll by siphoning the energy which was in the streets and in direct action and in demonstrations into the official process of reform um, which ultimately of course could and should have led to material and important gains however um, I think it's clear now uh, in, you know, the position we're in now in November of the following year that this campaign did not amount to anything. And the federal government made clear in multiple different ways that any locality or municipality that went about trying to do something like this uh, would face all kinds of repercussions. Um, some cities are still facing some form of military lockdown uh, due to their uh, direct action uh, and the people's uh, direct stance and opposition in the streets uh, to this uh, siphoning off of revolutionary and radical energy. Um, but anyways, I want to make clear that my point here is this that without the already existing and organized apparatus of the working class's interests whatever form that may take without that already existing the general energy and fervor of the people can only be that so i as a communist believe in the organization and ultimately the mass mobilization of a revolutionary proletarian party uh, preferably a communist one of course now there's a few different things uh, that I want to hit on first before I really go into my or argument of uh, why I feel a party is necessary. 
So there's a lot of different ways in which organization of the working class and oppressed people's movements takes place, right? Of course, one of the most main and, uh, you know, known examples is demonstrations. But ultimately, I think there are two different forms of demonstrations. I think there are spontaneous ones, um, and even in and under spontaneous ones, I would put um, consciously organized ones, which are not connected to a larger uh, movement, such as uh, like a single plant's picketing or strike, um, especially because of how easy it is to subvert uh, change the narrative and ultimately just completely make it impossible to know anything about these efforts. Um, you hear the term riot used, right? Or you just plainly hear no mention of it in the news. Um, and then I think you have organized uh, demonstrations which are connected to a larger uh, struggle. And these are harder to subvert it's harder to uh, muddy the waters and uh, make unclear the messaging. It's hard to keep it out of the news, right? And so <clears throat> one way in which uh, organizing is done is through demonstrations, protests, whatever. Another way in which it is done uh, is through different forms of unions, right? You have trade unions, work unions, you have co-ops. You have tenant unions. Nowadays, you see things like unemployed and jobless unions, uh, houseless uh, unions, etc. Now, these are uh, important and play many roles. Uh, first and foremost, they are important because it is a way to get organized. I mean, one of the mo I, it, it's hard for me to put it in words which make sense and aren't just me saying organized but like try to take that out of the context you're hearing it right now like when you say organized in any other fashion you basically mean that you've got your t's crossed and your i's dotted right like if my apartment or my office is organized everything that i need is there it's in the place that i need it to be i know where that place is and i have everything that i'm going to need for whatever purpose right hopefully so when you're talking about getting organized as a working class movement, any way in which the workers are more consciously forming themselves into bodies of power, into organizations, into unified um, coalitions intended to bring the workers closer, intended to focus on continuing the struggle in order to build strength right any of these are incredibly crucial you cannot ignore the usefulness of unions in any way that they take shape they are also used of course like we were talking about there's tenant unions there's all kinds of unions for all different places in life because you want to get people organized at work at home uh, in you know the healthcare field, 
on the battlefield, etc. Like, for example, what I mean by that is like the soldiers uh, during World War One formed Soviets and uh, red uh, army garrisons, which ultimately ended up being able to take control of the military uh, for the most part. And uh, eventually the soldiers fought for the revolution instead of for the Russian Empire. Um, so it's important, right, to be getting folks organized in every different field of life. Um, to never be able to really fall into the apathetic and blank stare that is day-to-day -day life, right? They're also useful because you can actually make uh, gains, right? Folks can get higher wages, folks can get health care and pensions, uh, folks can get guaranteed contracts, etc. But there are some uh, fallbacks, we'll say, to unions specifically, right? For example, oftentimes they are only capable of organizing in a very atomized section, whether that is a specific plant, right? Um, for example, if the Bessemer, Alabama, or the, I think there's one in Virginia now, uh, the Amazon Fulfillment Centers that tried to unionize, if they had unionized, it would have been only that location. It's not like all of Amazon is unionized. It's an opportunity to unionize all of Amazon. But at that moment in time, they are only capable of waging a struggle for that section, right? Because when they organize and they say, we, we need a higher pay, the you know the manager of the Amazon plant two states over isn't going to show up to the meeting and go okay I heard you guys said that we're talking about raises right you're only going to be able to talk with your manager um, at that time the other negative to them as history has found is that they focus too heavily on the economic struggle now I've harped on this point for a bit now but I think it's important to remember that when we ignore the social and political spheres of struggle, we are completely leaving out, one, a huge portion of the population which does not have jobs, which remains unemployed and poor, whether, you know, uh, small uh, jobs rise, etc. Um, you got your undocumented folks who are still working, right, and going to be uh, taken advantage of regardless but you also have to recognize that when unions or an economic struggle is waged here in the United States what happens all of the industry goes to the global south all of the jobs go to the global south and the exploitation is not so necessarily founded here in the United States in the borders of what we call uh, North America but our exploitation is now all over the world Right? We have to understand that if we are to try to do something to change the capitalist structure of society, we can't just do that in an individual state because capitalism will just simply export itself. Capital will find new markets. It will find new labor forces to exploit. It will find new resources and new land. That is the job of capital. That is the natural growth and natural tendency of capital. 
So because of that, unions don't always offer a full and uh, kind of wholesale uh, organization that is needed to not just simply implement change on a, a, a day-to-day, you know, kind of work or trade-based level, employment-based level, but uh, a, an entire societal and systemic change, right? That's what we're looking for because similar to, for example, police reform or defunding the police, at the end of the day, one thing that is quite certain that the Paris Commune, right, was able to accomplish is that uh, if a cop kills someone or if police continue their oppression of black, brown, indigenous people on a systemic level, there's not always the opportunity to do anything about that. Whereas in the Paris Commune, they had people serving these roles where they were immediately uh, able to be um, revoked from their position upon any action uh, being done that was not favorable to the rest of the communards, right? They were given a regular median wage. They, they were making anything that you know your general uh, laborer was making. There was no economic power to be gained there. And they were also not capable of attaining political or social power in that way because there was so much uh, of the power in the hands of the communards as a whole that individual police officers or the police officers as a, you know, a structure could not overpower the communards. And therefore, they, you didn't have any power that was to be vied for as a police officer in the same way because there was obviously still power to be had in the same way that a system such as ours is predicated purely on attaining power okay so one of the other ways in which we can organize is across all levels whether they be social political or economic uh, across all strata of society right and in every way shape and form as possible now that seems ridiculous right to say like okay we're gonna do everything first of all who's we right no party no oppositional parties remember that second of all uh how what are we gonna do when who where right why are we gonna be able to get across to the people when we take certain actions, whether those be strikes or demonstrations, um, whether those be uh, legislative uh, attempts, uh, or whether they just be, you know, purely uh, polemical and political attacks on uh, representatives and officials, will we always be able to get across why we're doing that? Not necessarily. Um, oftentimes, for example, uh, in Ferguson, what was that referred to? Riots. Their messaging was not clearly conveyed. What was happening was not clearly conveyed. So, you know, we got to handle the problem of who's we. We got to handle the problems of how. We got to handle the problems of, you know, really what this constitutes. So there's really three arguments that pop up uh, against a organized uh, working class oppositional communist party. First, 
A party is not an organic formation and oftentimes can be authoritarian in nature due to ultimately, in you know, most accusations, its isolation from the general working class. Two, the working class has no interest in socialism or communism, let alone politics at all. Three, it ignores the day-to-day -day struggles of the workers and focuses on unimportant party building. So let's kind of hash these out and then we'll finish off and see if anything else needs to be said. The first argument, right? A party is not an organic formation of the working class and can be authoritarian in nature. So firstly, this argument has been disproven by plenty of theoretical polemics, pamphlets such as On Authority by Angles, which was written in 1872, as well as just plainly historical developments through the successes of the Bolsheviks in Russia, the Chinese communists under Mao, the Vietnamese communists under Ho Chi Minh, the Sandinista government and revolutionaries under the Ortegas, uh, the Cuban Revolution, uh, the revolution in Burkina Faso, and plenty of others, right? Ultimately, what all of these revolutions were able to do that others have not been able to do was found in learning from the mistakes of not doing this, right? There were revolutions in Germany from 1858 to 1850. There was the Paris Commune. There was failed uprisings and revolutions in Russia in 1905 and in February of 1917. And other examples include the constantly cited quote-unquote anarchist revolution in Spain, which was written about by Engels in his work The Bakuninists at Work. Now, quite simply put, and I'm not going to go into too much nuance because I'm going to try to provide you with, you know, quotes and, and texts and arguments which you can flesh out yourself. It's not my job to make you believe me. It's your job to think for yourself. Go do it. Ultimately, the reason why most, if not all, of the previous revolutions leading up to the October Revolution in Russia of 1917 and the subsequent revolutions in China, Vietnam, Cuba, and plenty of other places, the reason why the revolutions pre-existing those did not accomplish the preordained objectives of the working class was because they were not properly organized. I mean, think of it like this. They didn't even really know what they were organizing for. Look at the difference between the German revolutions in 1848 and the revolution in Paris in 1871, known as the Paris Commune. Look at the difference between the ideology, the objectives, who took part, and really the results, right? Because that's where you find what the substance of the revolution really was, in the results. Look at the difference between just 1848 and in 1871. You have in Germany in 1848 a pissed off working class. They are just going at it. 
Now, they're not necessarily sticking to what is normally referred to as the machine-smashing era, but they are not really building popular power. They are not organizing themselves politically. They are not taking uh, any control of the state apparatuses. The military is not fighting in their uh on their side the police are not fighting on their side and basically all of those who are not members of the working class such as the peasantry right is not fighting hand in hand for the same objective as the workers now skip forward to 1871 you have the communards who uh because of the uh, historical moment in the Franco-Prussian War found themselves alone in Paris with the bourgeois members of France society, uh, French society having left and the uh, German armies deciding whether or not they are going to come in and take power over Paris. Um, in that period of time, you have over 30,000 people. I can't remember how many in total. It's something more impressive, but who were able to organize themselves into a revolutionary proletarian state power where they were able to implement uh, legislative changes. They were able to implement working and economic changes. They were able to place political power in the hands of the proletariat. They were able to enact uh, social reforms such as the aforementioned police reforms, but also things like public education being not specifically for, uh, for example, religious uh, reasons uh, and ultimately not just making education about getting a job either, right? Um, you had all other kinds of changes which made the content, right, the essence of the Paris Commune that much more revolutionary than the revolutions in Germany in 1848. But then you take it a step further and you have the revolution in 1917 in February in Russia and of course also the October Revolution in 1917, which show a completely different character, a completely different objective. So now the question becomes, you know, who's right, who's wrong? Again, the, the prize is really in the pudding, right? Um, the results of, for example, the revolutions of the Spanish uh, anarchists in, uh, I can't remember what year, I want to say 1870-something, but uh, and the uh, Bolsheviks in October of 1917, I think the results of those revolutions speak quite clearly to the uh, objective uh, rationality and uh revolutionary nature of the two different revolutions, right? So if that's the case, um, why? Well, uh, you know, my, my reasoning here is because ultimately these other revolutions had not acted decisively and independently of the bourgeois players, but often capitulated to the non-revolutionary uh, players. Nothing was really new, right? For example, in 1905, the Soviets were new. In 1917, in October, the Bolsheviks constituted something new, something revolutionary. The Chinese, the Vietnamese, the Cubans, they all constituted something incredibly different. And the difference was really in their willingness to take hold of the moment, even in some cases before it had really shown itself 
and wield it for the working class's own good, whether they were in the majority or the minority in doing so. Now, the second part of this argument is that uh, it's authoritarian, right? Um, quite simply put, authoritarianism is a scare word used by liberals and other ignorant folks who do not recognize how politics, societal and historical development, and especially revolutions actually materially take place and are carried out. This quote is from On Authority by Engels. Quote, a revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other part by means of rifles, bayonet, and cannon. Authoritarian means, if ever there were any at all. And if the victorious party does not want to have fought in vain, it must maintain this rule by means of the terror which its arms inspire in the reactionaries, end quote. Authority is incredibly necessary, especially in moments where the ideological quote-unquote neutrality is at the helm in most people's minds, whether that be intentionally by choice or not, most people aren't given the tools, such as the ideas, knowledge, and experience needed to wage a revolution, to defend it, and especially to enact what changes that revolution had intended to in the first place. This can only be done through authoritarian means, because it is, again, a revolution's goal to impose the will of the masses upon the majority and to be able to actually enact those changes and materially uh you know impact the world and especially be able to defend those things because you know right now with the attacks on the venezuelan government the attacks on the sandinista government the attacks on the chinese state the attacks on the cuban government right if there was not a proper authority in place which could, you know, really give the people the truth, uh, give the people the freedom and tools to act accordingly, and if there was not a uh, means of authority in place to stop the terrorist attacks, coup attempts, assassin assassination attempts, right, on the state and the people of these revolutionary countries then you would see far more outright fascism across the world not just especially in these countries because you have to remember that before the revolution in these countries cuba was the united states businessman's brothel and drug house and it was also the sugar field of the world right china was one of the poorest countries in the world with an illiteracy rate of over 90 percent it was one of the last uh, countries of its origin and of its kind of form uh, in existence. And the poverty that existed there and still, uh, you know, existed uh, right up until the uh, revolution took place, that was not uh, something that can ever be ignored, right? We have to remember that. You have to look at countries like uh, Nicaragua under the Somoza regime. You have to look at countries like Vietnam during the uh, U.S.-led, uh, you know, 
bombing campaign, really. That's all it really was, was just a complete destruction. Same within Korea, right? Um, if you didn't have these authorities in place, you would see more and more death, more and more poverty, more and more suffering. This is just plainly unignorable. And it's, it's you know, it's not able to be argued against. I don't really give a shit what your opinion of these countries are. And I'll tell you what, the revolutionary governments in these countries and the revolutionary masses in those countries surely don't give a shit what you think. Especially when you're shit-talking the revolution that they built. I mean, you gotta think, when we here in the West are talking shit about China, talking shit about the Sandinistas, talking shit about, you know, whatever revolutionaries it may be, you are talking about people who took their destiny into their hands. They did not let a ruling class, a fascist or a dictatorial regime of the bourgeois decide for them how their reality would look. They said, fuck that, give me a rifle, we, the people, are going to decide what our future looks like. So I don't really give a fuck what you think about that, and neither does history. So shut the fuck up and build your own revolution. Um, but yeah, anyways, um, th you know, th this argument is, um, outdated, uh, it was disproven by many pamphlets, one of the, you know, first ones being in 1872, 1872, it's 2021, I don't want to hear this authoritarian tanky bullshit anymore, uh, you're a liberal, uh, it's ridiculous, and honestly, at this point, um, you're a joke, um, and I love you, uh, and you can be a comrade, you know, and you can do more but you got to put that ignorance on the side you got to put that cia propaganda on the side dog um it's getting old and uh you look you look goofy you look silly you look silly guy uh quit goofing around quit joshing as i say you know <laughs> get it my name is josh um welcome to the show i uh do incredible work and it's been an hour and five minutes and you're still listening to this so this is your fault continuing Again, the second argument that is commonly made is that the working class has no interest in politics, let alone communist or socialist politics. So this one is difficult. Um, it, not really, I guess difficult isn't the word. This one is, it could be a long discussion. We're not going to do that because, again, we're already at an hour six. So um, Politics have been co-opted and subdued into a vain existence of voting and faux-democratic means of change, such as representative houses of governments, legislative bills, reforms, etc., which are all guided by and decided upon by the ruling class elites, which we have no control over, and ultimately has led towards a depoliticization, which means a continuous disconnection of the working class from politics and a disinterest in them, uh, and ultimately has led to less and less actual working class power within politics, within society. Um, but yeah, so first and foremost, that's, you know, why. People don't have an interest because uh, even when we are voting, we're not actually constituting a different path to change, right? And that's the one way which most people actually participate in politics. Nowadays, a lot of young folks are getting involved through protests, which is dope as shit, and keep that stuff up. But anyways, even with protests, you're not necessarily constituting an oppositional path to change. You're kind of, uh, unless you're doing it, again, as connected to a larger revolutionary goal and uh, a movement, um, 
you're ultimately kind of consistently capitulating to non-revolutionary means of change. Um, And even us socialists, um, even, uh, I should say, folks like Bernie Sanders and AOC who call themselves socialists, they're still, you know, basically bending to the will of the ruling class because they're not really, really... um, taking power they're not really using power they're kind of just like trying to do what bernie sanders even called explicitly a quote unquote revolution through elections um and again on that guerrilla history episode uh august nymphs makes clear why this simply isn't really enough at least in the sense that it does not constitute revolutionary control by the proletariat. And this is really why, um, when, I, when I say this, I don't want people to f- think that I'm coming at, you know, for example, like Bolivia, right, or Venezuela, because the difference being the Venezuelan state and the Bolivian state are building towards socialism, whereas uh, in the United States, we have a capitalist bourgeois state power. Um, and that's kind of really the difference. Um, if you disagree with that and you think that's not the case, um, because these countries don't constitute socialism to you, um, earlier when I was saying to folks, uh, to shut the fuck up and to, uh, actually learn from the revolutionaries who are building socialism, uh, that goes for you too. Um, but anyways, uh, communism and socialism are the ultimate desire of the masses although often this is not the conscious uh desired it is the ultimate uh necessity shall we say of the working class um this isn't because i have said so right this is historically proven we see again the results of different revolutions whether they be uh you know in different cases in different periods of time you had bourgeois revolutions you had uh socialist revolutions national liberation movements right revolutions all of these were of a different character and you have different results from each so now let's look at the different results compare the data and let's discuss here what worked and what didn't right another time though this is ultimately you know the reason why this isn't a conscious desire is because ultimately the masses have been lied to Uh, Anti-communism is the bread and butter of especially U.S. politics. And the general working class, such as even in Russia pre-1917, Germany pre-1848, and continuing further up until even, you know, in some cases now, Cuba pre-1915, China pre-1914, is, you know, really, it's not able to be given a true and digestible version of socialist and communist ideas uh to even consciously be able to say that they do or do not want communism uh or socialism and that ultimately is our job to change that we have to make them uh understand these ideas we have to make these ideas prominent and as available and ready to be understood as possible um, we also have to make them thorough. We have to make them constantly. We have to be unflinching in our, our really analysis and arguments. And against all odds, we have to make sure to spread this ideology to every sector of the country through all means possible, whether that be elections, demonstrations, petitions, strikes, 
speeches, unionization efforts, etc. The third argument, right, which is ultimately um, levied against the idea of a party, is that it ignores the day-to-day -day struggles of the masses and makes them play party builders. So, you know, quite honestly, this is a way in which liberalism will have us misunderstanding reality. We should not be playing metaphysician, and we shouldn't try to slice and atomize reality into individual pieces to try to understand it or try to make an argument against it. Today is connected to tomorrow, and yesterday is connected to a hundred years ago, and all of that connects back to today. If we don't understand why a party is necessary today, let alone tomorrow, that's not uncommon. In 1895, around 1895 to 96, Lenin began writing draft and explanations of a program for the Social Democratic Party while in prison with multiple other exiles and political prisoners. This is one of the first iterations of Lenin's foresight. And ultimately it shows, uh, as many of his works do, his grasp on dialectical and historical development as well as necessity of a socialist party and especially for a socialist revolution two decades before the October Revolution ever took place. Uh, he recognized quite clearly, learning again from the historical developments in Germany, Paris, and other countries which were taking part in uh, different kinds of working class movements, such as Poland, England, and France, and even, uh, you know, different parties and acts which had been taken in the, the uh, uh, Russian Empire, because, you know, Lenin's brother was killed for trying to assassinate the Tsar, like, Lenin understood shit a little bit better than most folks did. He had that foresight, right? <clears throat> uh, he, it, he understood that the party had to exist prior to the revolution so as to be organized as possible and ready to strike at the most opportune time. If not, as it happened in Spain, Germany, Poland, England, and France, as well as many others since then, uh, the people would be galvanized, right, ready to do something, and without a guiding force to really lead their charge. Um, some people dislike the fact that we want a guiding force, that we want an authority that's actually, you know, really leading the charge of the working class. Um, but as I pointed to in the initial argument, uh, the need for this apparatus to already exist is really clear in all of history. Um, why did the Cubans, the Sandinistas, the Bolsheviks, and the Chinese communists succeed not only in attaining state power, which, for example, in Russia, the SRs, the Social Revolutionaries, the Mensheviks, and the, the provisional government even had state power for a period of time. How did the uh, Bolsheviks, in this sense, right, attain state power, but also withstand the blows, civil war, counter-revolution, invasion, sanctions, coup attempts, and other attacks against their rule and state control, while actually implementing material changes which improved and eliminated the issues which the working and oppressed people were facing? If that is the case, if they were able to do that, how, what did the October Revolution 
and the party which organized it do that the February Revolution could not. The day-to-day struggle of the workers cannot be solved by the day-to-day workers themselves. Why? Because they're at work. They can get fired and therefore lose housing, go hungry, or even instead on the other side of it, get sucked into the path of economism, which we discussed earlier, which ultimately discludes the idea of attaining full proletarian control of the entire state apparatus. And it also does not recognize how that, again, the purely economic struggle doesn't necessarily lead towards revolutionary consciousness or organization, especially not revolution, which the workers need in order to actually attain the material changes which they need. The final reason why a party is ultimately necessary, and this will lead us out, is because consciousness and ideology is incredibly important. And especially before a revolutionary moment has arised, the people have to be aware of, knowledgeable in, and ready to act upon the ideals that they have uh, you know, whether in this sense revolutionary or not, this is still true, uh, whether they do this through reforms, class collaboration, or through other means of stagnant and unrealistic change, they have to be aware of what will and will not work. They have to be aware of what their goals are. They have to be aware of what has historically worked, what has been proven to fail in the past. They have to be able to not only wage their revolution, not only gain state power and attain control over the society that they live in, but they also have to materially implement changes, not just in word, not just in legislation which never gets acted upon, not just in organizations, private contractors, or, you know, uh, donation funds, but actual material and concrete change which leads towards a different society being built. Um, If they don't do that, they will find themselves based in an idealistic notion of change, which, uh, you know, again, can come through uh, reforms, class collaboration, in other forms of stagnant and unrealistic change, such as the Dumas, such as, uh, um, you know, capitulation with the Kuomintang in China, such as the uh, periods of the July 26th movement in uh, Cuba, right, and uh, or the anarchist moments in um, uh, in the, you know, Russian Revolution, etc., um, understanding why these uh, things are crucial, uh, having a concrete analysis of these, right? Uh, it ultimately leads towards a actual capability to create the change that we're going for. <clears throat> so this is why the party is necessary, right? The party is a base, pre-existing foundation or a stage even for members to learn the much-needed skills technical and uh, practical knowledge gain the experience and the consciousness 
and really learn to understand the ideology which is guiding the movement, as well as attaining strategical and tactical know-how on how to implement the change, which is our objective. The party is an opportunity to have an almost assembly line-like uh, apparatus, which I just noticed here, I put in parentheses, I don't like that uh, <laughs> analogy, change it when speaking or use it synonym. So the point that I'm trying to make, right, is that the party is, it's, it's, a, it's a sandwich line, right? Every sandwich that's coming through is a working class person or uh, you know, a working class organization even, right? A workplace, etc., a local tenant union, whatever. Everything on the line that goes on every single sandwich, it's there because the sandwich line exists. And ultimately it's there because I guess the restaurant exists, but now I'm just getting into my high thoughts. But anyways, the party exists as an apparatus to take the average working class person, who of course has to volunteer for this, it's not like it's grabbing people on the street, I really, Lenin says quite clearly in many different uh, points in his life, he goes, what kind of will, what kind of power do you think that we constitute over the masses? What, what do you think that we're doing here? You know, the majority of people didn't know who the Bolsheviks really, really were until after the insurrection in October, right? Even if they knew their name had uh, political representatives, they might not have even really understood what their objective was, right? Because they could have just been completely and blissfully ignorant. Um, not that they probably were, but that could have been a thing that existed, right? But the party takes the average working person and gives them everything, especially the ideology which is able to, in every way, whether it be in politics, in social issues, in economic and workplace uh, inequalities, that ideology is able to give us the answers to the questions and the problems that we're facing. The party, right, the organized people, because we gotta understand, the party is, it, it's, it's so ridiculous to expect that um, this will ever be fully understood, um, because sometimes even trying to explain it, I get, you know, fumbled over my own words. But you got to remember, someone like Lenin, he's not disconnected from the working class. He came from the proletariat. He became a member of the party. He became a member of the Central Committee. He became a leading, uh, you know, revolutionary. But he was still a working class proletariat person. So, like, the party itself is an organic development. It develops naturally as a necessity to try to combat and wage a revolution against capitalist bourgeois society. That's why a communist party pops up in every single revolutionary fucking country that has a revolution. It's not just there because these fucking, you know, sneaky little communists are spreading the word all over the place. It's because it's the ideology that has the answers. But anyways party can take many different forms, right? And, and this is really where the people get to decide. And this is why understanding that the party is an organic development and ultimately built on the conscious workers uh, is necessary because it's the conscious workers 
who organize themselves, who ultimately decide how and what and where and when and why this party takes form. Um, so yeah, this is really why I think a party is important um, and ultimately why I think we need to be building a party now. Because again, if we don't have an apparatus ready to guide the already existing anger and radical energy, then we're just going to keep having Joe Bidens. We're just going to keep seeing Bernie Sanders run for president. Um, and might I uh, remind folks here that the Biden administration, just as you know, one example, is actually far more harsh uh, against the Cuban uh, revolutionary people and government than the Trump administration was um, going back to the policies of the Obama administration almost. Um, so we must understand that the Democratic Party offers no opposition. The uh, revolutionary communists within the United States need to be building a party which can constitute uh, a vanguard formation to ultimately guide the working class uh, anger against the bourgeois oppressors. Um, and we need to do it quick. Um, if you're still listening to this, thank you so much. Please let me know what you think. Um, get a hold of me by following me on social media and DMing me there. I have Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find me uh, by emailing me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. Uh, or you can find my website at forliberation.wixcite.com forward slash website. Both that URL and my email are without caps or spaces. If you have any comments, critiques, or questions, please feel free to send those my way. I hope everybody's staying safe, staying healthy. I hope we understood uh, and um, enjoyed this episode. Um, please, again, any you know critiques, feel free to let me know all about what you thought of this episode. Um, and yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope everybody is well. I hope everybody is staying healthy and staying safe. Um, please, please, please go organize. Um, for those of you who haven't heard, on October 23rd, 2021, the United States was found guilty on five uh, different forms of genocidal acts, ultimately leading to a guilty charge of genocide uh, by a group known as the International Tribunal of Human Rights Abuses Against Black, Brown, and Indigenous People. This was ultimately spearheaded by a group known as the Spirit of Mandela Foundation, along with many other activists, organizers, and organizations. What this means is that now Black, Brown, and Indigenous people have a guilty charge against the state um, by an international court. Um, because the U.S. government is not beholden to the International Criminal Court. It is not beholden to The Hague. It is not beholden to any international uh, court. So, of course, the people who will say the U.S. government and the U.N. will do nothing about this, we know. Um, the point is that we must do something about this. So, for more information on that, please get a hold of me. But please use this information to go organize, go educate, go propagandize, go build a fucking communist party. Um, go get with the masses, go meet their needs, go feed some homeless people, grow a community garden, learn self-defense, uh, become 
uh, local representative, um, do other illegal actions against uh, alleged uh, state <laughs> officials uh, in a non-existing fake reality uh, for satire uh, because, you know, the time has come that by any means necessary is truly uh, the, the call of the people. Um, so, again, uh, thanks for listening. Um, please hit me up. <laughs> Uh, and let me know what you thought of the show. Everybody stay safe, stay revolutionary, and we'll see you next time.